You know, what's really disturbing about that video is all the stuff we left out. Seriously, think about that for a minute. I mean, all the different issues that we just raised and gave you just little snippets of, little snippets of, little snippets of, it's just a little snippet of the big picture of need in our community in Broward County. It's just a tiny little slice of the pie. Sobering, isn't it? It is. Well, last week we started a series of messages. We're calling it the Serve Series, Gather and Plug In and Serve. And the big idea is that our purpose is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which begs the question of how do we grow in our relationship with Christ. And we've unpacked then GPS for that. We gather, and in gathering, we grow. We plug into community groups, and in plugging into community groups, we grow. But we also, and that's what we're focusing on, Grow by serving, by waking up to the reality that Jesus Christ calls us to go into all the world, not as someone with an agenda, not as someone who has a dictator, not as somebody who wants to tell everybody else what to do, and hopefully the whole world can serve us, but we're called to go in the fashion of our Lord, who, as Matt said already this morning, came into the world. And what is his self-commentary? He said, look, I didn't come to be served. Could have, didn't. But I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, but for many what? For many people. And so we started with people last week. We looked at the gospel and people, and we saw the incredible love that God has for sinful, broken people in the story of the prodigal son. People who are supposed to be reflected in that banner. I walked in last week, I saw that banner, and Matt said, what do you think? And I thought, oh my, you know, because I thought like a third grader had done it, honestly. I walked in this morning, and I saw that it was crooked, and I'm like all about straight edges and making everything level. That's why I spent half my sermon time fixing my notes, you know, and I've got it on that round table. Freaks me out completely. But it's a pretty good portrayal. We got together last week, and we saw in the story the prodigal son... The love of God for sinful, broken, messy, crooked people. People who not only have abandoned God, but who have run away from Him as far as they possibly can. People who have not only failed to be thankful to God for everything that they have, but who have in fact taken everything that they have and squandered it on themselves alone. People who not only have neglected the law of God, but who seemingly have done everything that they can to disobey the law of God. And as a result, they've brought upon themselves a filth and a guilt and a shame that they cannot cleanse themselves of, that they cannot get rid of, unpack, unload, become free of. We started the series by looking at God's love for people like me and for people like you. And what did we see? We saw a father who longs to see his wayward children come home. We saw a father who wants to cover over that filth and guilt and shame with the robe of his righteousness. He longs to place upon our hands the symbol, the emblem of belonging in the family of God, the ring of sonship, and who himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, God became a man, became the fattened calf that was slain on a cross as the penalty for our sins, that we might be forgiven and forever partake of the feast of his table. That's what we saw last week, and we walked away with that statement, that mantra, that people matter to God, and they need to matter to us. But then the question is, as Matt said earlier also, how are they going to know? I mean, they matter to God, and they need to matter to us, but how do they know that they matter? And that takes us to today's topic, which is the gospel and mercy. Mercy is the answer. 
Guys, mercy is the love language of God. And here's the deal. It's the love language that God wants to speak through me and through you to all the people in each one of our little individual worlds, all the people that we work with, play with, go to school with, those people. But not only that, in the world of Rio Vista Community Church, we call it Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, if we're really ambitious, South Florida. And beyond that, to the people in the great big world we live in, mercy is the love language of God, which practically speaking means that love is not just something that we say. Love is something also that we do. We need to articulate the love of God as we find it in the gospel of Jesus Christ with our mouths. Please hear that. But we need also to demonstrate the same love of that same God through selfless acts of mercy. Mercy is the love language of God, and He wants to speak it through us. And to kind of demonstrate that this morning, I want to look at one of the most famous stories that has ever been told. And, uh, but before I give you the story itself, I want to tell you where the story is going, okay? Jesus is taking us on a journey with this story, and a journey with Christ always has a destination. It's very intentional. So let me give you the destination, and then we'll unpack the journey. Jesus is going to tell us this story this morning, and then he's going to look around the room, and every one of us, he's going to say this. You ready? He's going to say, go and do likewise. That's the destination. And the story begins with a question by an expert in the law, meaning the law of Moses, kind of a guy who, you know, he's got a Ph.D. in theology, if you will. He knows it all. He's been trained in the law. And Luke tells us that he comes to test Jesus. And what he means by that is he doesn't come hoping that Jesus will clear something up for him, you know. He's the guy with the Ph.D. He comes to Christ thinking he already knows the answer. He comes to Jesus hoping Jesus does not know the answer so that he can, you know, discredit Jesus, so that he can make light of Jesus, so he can take this guy who has no formal training at all and go, oh, my goodness, you know, see all of the Ph.D.s line up here on this particular topic, and then we've got Jesus over here. He thinks he's got the answer, and in sort of a sense he does. But Jesus is going to make the answer a little bit more clear for him. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, and here's his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, and a lot of us live for that moment. It's like, yeah, I never thought anybody would ever ask me that question. And we would jump in, I hope, and start telling him all about the fact that, you know, what you do doesn't result in eternal life. That's what keeps you from it. You can't do enough to gain eternal life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, we would drop evangelism explosion on them as we should. But it's not what Jesus does. Jesus just flips it around. He does this on people who test him. You would think they'd quit doing it at some point, but teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, what's written in the law? I mean, you're the expert. How do you read it? And so with his Ph.D. credentials hanging, you know, behind him, he goes, well, <clears throat> thought you'd never ask. Maybe I can clear this up for you, Jesus. And listen to the answer that he gives, because it is the summation of the law of God. And watch out for the word all. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul, and with all your strength, 
and with all your mind. And in case that's not intimidating enough, let's just go to the second commandment here. And love your neighbor as yourself, okay? And then what's shocking to us as evangelicals who understand that what we do, you know, keeps us out of heaven. It's not going to get us into heaven. We can't do enough. Jesus says, good answer. He says, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. And then he offends our evangelical sensibilities even a little bit further because he takes that word do and he uses it. He says, do this and you will live. And you read that and think, what are you doing? Because, I mean, we've got to assume that Jesus, of all the people in the universe, understands salvation. That it's not about what we do, but it's about what Christ has done. In fact, he did it because we couldn't. Jesus is taking... The entire laws, this man has just summed it up, and he's saying, okay, I want you to feel the weight of that standard. If that's how you're going to try to gain eternal life, then do that, and you'll live. And the key is the little word do. In the Greek language, the little word do calls for a continuous action. So in other words, he's coming to this guy, and he's saying, listen, here's the thing. If you can love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, perfectly, every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of your life. You're in. But if not, you might want to run to the Savior who's done it for you and claim His merits, His righteousness as your own by faith. Because God calls you to a perfect, all-the-time obedience to that. And I think, all of a sudden, this guy started fracturing. He's come to test Jesus, and now he's the one who's finding himself taking the test. And what happens is, all of a sudden, he immediately starts retreating from that standard. It's like, oh, good grief, because the weight of it all begins to start coming down on him. But the problem is that he does what so many of us do. Instead of running to Christ and throwing up our hands in the air and going, ah, you know, I'm done here. I mean, you, you need to do this for me. He tries to dumb the standard down. If I can just make it a little easier, maybe I can do it, is the idea. Well, by neighbor, surely you don't mean... says this lawyer wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's thinking, look, you know, if my neighbor looks like me and thinks like me and walks like me and talks like me and lives like me and votes like me and agrees with me on all the issues of life, maybe I've got a shot. But if not... And in response, Jesus tells him this most famous of stories, the story that ends with this statement, go and do likewise. In reply, Jesus said there was a man, and by the way, the assumption is that he's a Jewish man. I mean, he's talking to a Jewish expert in the law. He's talking before a Jewish audience, and he intentionally chooses his carefully, I mean, his his characters very, very carefully. He picks a guy who this expert in the law and all of his audience would go, yeah, I'm cool with that guy. I'd, I'd go ahead and classify him as a neighbor. A Jewish man, somebody who looks and thinks and talks and acts and walks and votes and... You get the idea? He says, somebody just like you. 
was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he means that literally. I mean, when you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you physically, geographically descend about 3,500 feet. It's like a 17-mile walk. Now, what he doesn't say, but what you need to know is that it was notoriously dangerous. People were regularly attacked, regularly robbed, regularly killed or left for dead on the side of the road. His audience understood that. His audience knew that. Some of his audience maybe had experienced that. They certainly knew people who had experienced that. It's in the news all the time. And they also knew that you didn't go down that road alone. That was foolishness. And Jesus has this guy traveling by himself. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he quite predictably felt into, fell into the hands of robbers, and, uh, and they did to him what robbers do. They stripped him of his clothes, leaving him naked and exposed to the elements. They beat him, and they went on, his, or went on their way, leaving him not dead, guys, but half dead, the point being that he is utterly helpless, and he's going to die if somebody doesn't stop and show him mercy. And so Jesus says, and then a priest happened to be going down the same road, which also was a usual occurrence. See, most of the priests lived in Jericho. So they travel up to Jerusalem to do their priestly duties twice a year. So commonly you find these religious figures traveling up and down this incredibly dangerous road. And so here he calls on one of those characters, and he says, well, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he, and here's the important word, saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, a lesser religious official, but a religious official nonetheless, when he came to the place and again saw him pass by on the other side. And again, Jesus is very carefully choosing his characters and he very carefully chooses like the most religious of people. And it creates in the minds of his hearers an expectation. And what's the expectation? I mean, if you're the guy beaten, bloody, half dead, lying on the side of the road and you know you got like one eye open and you see the priest coming, you're thinking, good news! And he walks by. Bummer. All right, well, you know, you still got the one eye cocked, you know, and you're kind of looking down, and here comes the Levite, and you're thinking, all right, surely he's going to help. And he doesn't. What's the expectation of the priest, of the Levite, of religious people? By the bruised, by the beaten, by the wounded. The expectation is that we're going to doggone do something. And when we don't, what do they say? Oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. It's not fair entirely. But there's an expectation in this world in which we live that we will be a people who will do more than talk about mercy. So anyway, here comes the priest, and he walks by, you know, and here comes the Levite, and he walks by, and I don't know about you, but if you're like me, and you're feeling a little guilty right now, which is not the point of the message, by the way, if you want to try to kind of create an excuse for these guys, because they're religious people, and I'm a religious person, and some of you are very religious people, and so, you know, you start thinking, well, okay, maybe, uh, maybe the deal is they thought the guy was dead as they happened upon him, and they're priests and Levites, and they worked in the temple, and there was this law about don't touch anything dead or you'll become ceremonially unclean, and I mean, that would disqualify them from their duties and so on and so forth, but that just doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because Jesus, who is so careful, has them coming down from Jerusalem. So they finished their priestly duties. They can handle a week of being unclean. 
And more than that, his audience knew that there was a law that said if you came upon an abandoned corpse, you must bury it. And that was incumbent upon the priest and the Levite and everyone else as well. So Jesus tells this story in such a way as to leave them without any excuse. But I'm not satisfied yet, and so I'm still trying to find one for him. And I think to myself, okay, well then maybe... They made a value call, you know. I mean, they looked at this guy who obviously should not have traveled down this road alone, whose foolishness has landed him on the side of the road, who's half dead, and they thought, well, he's probably going to die anyway, and maybe that's good. He can serve as a lesson to everybody else who's foolish in the world and who comes down this road by themselves. This is what happens to you in life if this is how you live. You ever thought that? I think that's one of our excuses for walking by the people on the road of our life. You know what? Kind of knew the ride when you bought the ticket. I mean, we don't say that out loud. But is there something in our heart that says that? If you didn't live that kind of lifestyle, you wouldn't be in this thing. If you weren't so foolish, you wouldn't, you know, and you can't fix stupid. So I don't know what to do with you. And if it wasn't for this sin in your life, you wouldn't, you know, and then you're on the ditch. And the, I mean, what did you expect? What did you think was going to happen? Hello, when you started going down this road, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out where you were going to end up. As though we're perfect. See, Jesus doesn't leave them or us with that excuse. I don't know if you noticed, but he has them traveling alone as well. So he makes them guilty of the same stupidity that ended up, this guy anyway, on the side of the road. He's telling the story in such a way that we, are, we cannot miss the fact that there's no excuse for walking by. Not for them and not for us. And he makes it clear also that the problem with these guys is not with their eyes. They both saw him. They recognized his plight. The problem is that the only person they could think of in that moment was themselves. All they could think about was, oh my goodness, there might be robbers around. I've got to get out of here. You know, look at the time. Sorry. Or, oh, this is going to be a pain. This is going to cost me time, money, you know, I'm going to get bloody and dirty and sweaty. This is not going to be an easy fix. Colossally inconvenient. Jesus says a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw this Jewish man, even though he looked like him and thought like him and walked like him and talked like him and voted like him and agreed with him on, well, pretty much everything. I mean, even though he himself probably would have said, neighbor, okay, pretty much looks like this guy. He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, even though he could similarly identify and he would have classified him as neighbor. I'm comfortable with that definition. He passed by on the other side and then Jesus says something incredibly shocking, even offensive to the people in his audience. He says, but a Samaritan, an inveterate enemy of the Jews, this people that hated the Jews and whom the Jews hated, they terrorized each other for centuries prior to Christ. He says, but a Samaritan, a surprise character, as he traveled, came to where this Jewish man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And even though the robbers might still be around, I mean, this is evidence of the fact that, uh-oh, this is a dangerous place to be. 
Even though it was going to be really terrifically inconvenient, it was going to cost him time and money and, you know, he had places to be and people to see. Even though this guy kind of knew the ride when he bought the ticket, I mean, what did you think was going to happen, pal? Even though this would not be popular with the folks back home. Why? Because this guy did not look or think or act or walk or talk or vote or agree with this guy on pretty much anything. Notwithstanding all of those things, this man, it says, went to him. And I love that because he didn't form a committee. He didn't try to institutionalize it. He didn't call the Jewish Federation for people left stranded on the side of the road, you know, between Jericho and Jerusalem. He didn't go to Jerusalem and then lobby for more safety on this particular road, and that's how I'm going to help you, buddy, or at least, well, not you, but others, and not that that's a bad thing to do. It's not. He personally helped this guy. I read a quote by D.L. Moody this week, and he said this. He says, I can pay a person to do some work, but I cannot pay a person to do my work. And I think what Jesus is saying in this story that's going to end in a few minutes here with the words, go and do likewise, is that this is our work. This guy went to him and got personally involved. It says he bandaged his wounds. He, he poured oil and wine on them, you see. Then he put the man on his own donkey and walked beside him. Called his wife, I'm not going to make it home tonight. I picked up this Jewish guy. Yeah, yeah, no, don't tell your mother. She's not going to understand. But I couldn't pass him by. Called his secretary, cancel everything for tomorrow. I'm going to be up all night nursing this Jewish guy. Yeah, I know, I know, just... But he was going to die if he wasn't shown mercy. I was his hope. So then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day, you know, before he obligated himself any further, he ran a credit check to make sure the guy could pay him off. Says so the next day he took out two silver coins, enough for room and board for two weeks. It's not an insignificant sum. And he gave them to the innkeeper and the innkeepers in the days of Christ were known for their dishonesty. And, um, and then he said this, he says, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So he kind of like blindly obligates himself to this guy who might run up quite a tab. And you say, well, what happened next? I don't know. Well, did the guy live? I mean, did, you know, the bloody, naked, half-dead guy, did he make it after all that? Did he? Did he no idea. Well, what about the innkeeper? Did he have a party, you know, and run up this massive tab? Oh, man, this guy was here for six months, and you can't believe, you know, and we had to have the helicopter fly in, and I obligated my... Is that what he did? Can't tell you. All right, well, then what about the Jewish man and, and the Samaritan? I mean, if he did, in fact, live, did they correspond? Did they send each other emails? Did they have kind of a, a reunion of sorts where they brought their families and they brought them all to this particular end, this place of mercy, and, and they were reconciled, Jew and Samaritan, and it began this, like, great, you know, revolution between the Jews and the Samaritans, this revival of sort, this reconciliation that happened and brought centuries of... Con no, none of that. Don't have any idea. 
Story's over. Unless it begins anew in you and in me. And that's what it's intended to do. Jesus looks around and then he looks at this expert in the law and he says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And of course, the expert in the law objected. He said, no, I'd like the court reporter to reread my question. You're going to have to go way back. But read my question again because that wasn't my question. My question was, who is my neighbor? But he doesn't do that because he knows, just like you know, Jesus has already answered that question. Who is our neighbor, guys? Is it every hurting person on every street everywhere? No, but it is every hurting person on the road of our life. If you've got to step on him, over him, around him, toward him, or away from him, he's yours. So Jesus answered the question, but he didn't tell the story to answer a question. He's not doing this to settle some kind of a theological or intellectual dispute. He's not even telling us this so that he can tell us how we're supposed to feel or what we're supposed to say even. He's telling us this story that he might tell us what we're supposed to do. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had what? Mercy on him. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. People matter to God and they need to matter to us, which begs the question of, well, how then will they know? And the answer is mercy. Mercy is the love language of God, and it's the love language of God that he seeks to speak through me and through you to the people in each one of our little individual worlds, to the people in this community, this world of ours collectively as Rio Vista Community Church that we call Fort Lauderdale, and to the great big world in which we live. It's the love language of God, which means, practically speaking, that it's not just something that we say. Love is also something that we do. And so Jesus takes us on this journey. It's a journey with a destination, isn't it? And he tells us this story. And I want you to hear the voice of the Savior because when he's done with the story, he then says, go and do likewise. Amen.